This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Earlier this week, we were talking at the uh, Bay Area Economic Summit. That's the summit, of course, between the cities of Hamilton and Burlington. And we talked about the economic future and the forecast and what these two cities need to do to gird ourselves against, uh, for instance, NAFTA. Well, uh, the area MPs, uh, federal MPs, all went uh, down to Washington, I guess, over the last couple of days uh, and uh, had meetings and uh, came away saying that uh, they feel as confident as they can be after visiting Washington and talking with uh, the Canadian ambassador and some U.S. representatives about the impact that NAFTA may have on the steel industry. And, of course, that's pretty big around Hamilton, ArcelorMittal to Fasco, of course, but especially now with Stelco trying to get back on its feet with Bedrock Industries, etc. Uh, the Buy American policies of New York State and certainly the Buy American attitude of Donald Trump that he's been talking about uh, during the campaign and, of course, since his inauguration should have us concerned. So did these MPs get anything that, that they could take to the bank to say things are going to be fine, uh, or are they just you know, crossing their fingers and hoping. Let's uh, join Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa uh, to give us a perspective on this. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Is there anything that these guys in Washington can say or do that is, is going to assuage some of the concerns we have here? Or are we just going to have to ride this thing out? Um, actually, I think it's going to be uh, a net positive. These the five, I think it's five MPs from the yeah. Hamilton area going down. Uh, I'm not criticizing them for doing it. They've, you know, you've got to do something to represent your constituents. Um, I will uh, fully acknowledge that we are not the problem, uh, and this has been massively studied. I testified before the House of Commons last fall on this very issue of steel and the oversupply of steel in the world, and there is just a widespread uh, consensus that it is caused by Chinese dumping. It is not caused by uh, Canada uh, or uh, other countries. In fact, I had the stats there, uh, which I tabled, to the committee uh, from the world steel industry, as well as from the U.S. Uh, organized, uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce, as well as the Europeans, both of uh, which the Europeans and the Americans have found that they have determined that the Chinese are dumping. So the problem is not uh, Canada, uh, uh, but we could, might get hit as collateral damage by Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. Uh, who is executing the America First agenda of his boss, which is President Trump. So, uh, I, but, but you've asked a very good question. I, I actually think we might dodge the bullets on this one. Really? Uh, I do, uh, partly because there's no deficit, uh, a trade deficit, with the U.S. on steel. Uh, the, you know, it's just about, it's roughly in balance. I think it's a little bit positive for the U.S., Secondly, of course, we have the uh, integrated uh, supply chains because of NAFTA and the auto industry. And, and, and thirdly, and most importantly, actually, I should have said firstly, it is, it is the Chinese, not, not, not uh, Canada. So, you know, between that and then the goodwill that's been generated by, uh, by uh, the Trudeau government, and I mean by that the ambassador uh, working uh, the, the, the contacts in the Congress, and, of course, cabinet ministers going down, and then the MPs going down, uh, uh, people from the uh, provincial governments going down. Um, I, I, it may we may, as I said, dodge the bullet uh, on this uh, on this uh, particular issue when they announce the uh, duties that are uh, will likely be imposed at least on the Chinese. There was some concern, and there has been ever since two thousand nine. And this this is not just Trump. I understand the uh, the angst about Trump, and I think it's well placed. But even the Obama administration was was uh, developing by American policies to try to pull themselves out of the recession. And, and the talk at that time, Ian, was, well, you know, we're only going to use U.S. steel on all these mega projects that we're going to be involved in now. 
Uh, and they did cut a deal on that. There seemed to be some compromise on that, especially uh, when it came to that time, the Hamilton operations, because U.S. Steel was essentially an American operation out of Pittsburgh. And even though there was a plant in Hamilton, they kind of said, okay, fine, you guys can do that. Now, Bedrock is, is not a company per se, but it is U.S.-based. Does that give us any sway at all here? Uh, I don't, I don't uh, think so. But I, I want to address, Billy, the larger issue you just brought up, because I think it's absolutely critical. And I've been uh, giving presentations in the auto area making this very argument that, um, you know, people, I think, are too focused on Trump. And I mean by that, they think that, oh, well, if Trump just goes away or when he does go away, all our problems will go away. And uh, this is extremely naive by Canadians. Protectionism was rampant in the U.S. Congress under the time of uh, President Obama and before that under Bush. Um, so it, there's a long history of, of America firstism, if I can call it that. We've been fortunate as Canadians that a series of American presidents up to but before Trump uh, did not go along with the protectionist members in the Congress, who are overwhelmingly, by the way, populated in the Democratic Party. Remember, people, you know, we tend to think of the Democrats as our friends and the Republicans as our enemies. It's Republicans that have consistently supported historically free trade agreements, and it's been the Democrats who have been historically opposed. In fact, they oppose NAFTA. Clinton, got, who was a Democratic president, only got NAFTA through the Congress because the Republicans supported it. And so my point that I'm getting at is, is that this points to me, and I realize this may not, not resonate well with some people in the Hamilton area, especially in the union movement who don't like trade agreements, but this points to me why it is absolutely so essential that we do a NAFTA 2.0. We need to have a new and improved and better NAFTA precisely to address softwood lumber disputes, precisely to address steel uh, by American disputes, precisely to deal with all of these irritants. I mean, I keep arguing to people, I say to my students every year, trade agreements don't cause trade. The ancient Phoenicians and the ancient Chinese on the ancient Silk Road were doing trade agreements five and 10,000 years ago, way before NAFTA existed, way before the, the European trade agreement existed, way before the WTO existed. All trade agreements do is create a set of rules around the trading that is already occurring. My best analogy, because people may say that's a distinction without a difference, think of our proverbial lovely hockey. We all love hockey in Canada. Oh, yeah. Well, the hockey rules don't teach you how to skate. All the hockey rules say is if you raise your stick and hit somebody in the eye, you're going to get put into the penalty box for a certain number of minutes. It doesn't teach you how to skate, how to shoot the puck, when to shoot the puck. It just says there's certain things, if you do these following things, if you trip the opponent, you know, this is what is going to happen to you. And people confuse the trade rules with trade. Trade and the trade rules are two different things. Trade rules set a, create a set of rules for the game precisely to prevent the bigger side, the bully, if I can say that, the bigger partner in a trade agreement, or not in a trade agreement, the bigger partner in a trading relationship, from cheating. That's why it's in the best interest of small countries like Canada or Sweden or Scandinavian countries to have trade agreements with the big countries because the big countries have a lot more weight and a lot more clout and so we want to constrain them through a rule-of-law type set of rules to, uh, to prevent cheating. And that's why we have rules that govern soccer and football and hockey and trade, trading. And, and so we should be, and I do applaud the Prime Minister on this, 
we should be at that table not with reluctance. We should be there demanding a new trade agreement precisely to cover off these things so that the Americans can't do buy American in the future. Uh, or at least we get an agreement as good as we can possibly negotiate that will mitigate or reduce the risk of Americans doing things like invoking buy American uh, or putting uh, uh, you know um, uh, duties on our softwood lumber or on our steel or on whichever product uh, it is of the day that happens to upset them. And, and that's why we need a revised trade agreement. Not that NAFTA was bad. It was great. But it, there's a whole bunch of things not covered by NAFTA. And we, we need a bigger and a more comprehensive NAFTA to create rules of the game to make sure this, essentially this cheating, and I call this cheating, you know, when they put duties on Canada or they put uh, Buy American on, on, uh, to keep out American, Canadian products, that's a form of cheating. And so we want a trade agreement to as much as possible prevent that. And I realize in a perfect world, we're not in a perfect world, we're not going to get a perfect trade agreement. But we don't want to, uh, the, you know, perfection to be the enemy of the good. If we can get something better that we've got now that reduces the bad behavior of the Americans, then we are better off for it. The other element, though, that I think has to be discussed here, because I, it's going to be a factor in these discussions, is the political element of this. And, yes. and and what you've just explained, I totally agree with. And from a pragmatic and economic standpoint and from a business standpoint, that's exactly the, the foundation for the discussions as it should happen. And I'm sure that that's what a professional like Wilbur Ross is going to bring to the table from the American side. But you know as well as I do, Ian, his boss wants political wins. He yeah. wants a photo op in the Rose Garden saying, oh, yeah. I brought jobs back to America. Exactly. Uh, you know, we got the better of the deal. That's what he wants. Yeah. And and those are his marching orders. Those are Wilbur Ross's marching orders. How, do, how, does, he, how does he deal that? And, and try to, to work within that framework when he knows his boss is at the other end saying, give me a win here. Bill, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm not just saying this to me to go along with you. Uh, he, and I mean Trump now, needs those three states that elected him and made him the president of the United States. And I'm talking Wisconsin, and I'm talking uh, Michigan, and I'm talking Pennsylvania. And there's an awful lot of anti-trade people in those states who feel that American workers are getting shafted. Yep. He needs uh, deliverables and photo ops so he can go to those voters in those states and states that he just nearby that he carried just by the hair in his chinny-chin-chin and say, I delivered the bacon. So we, the Canadians, the negotiators, have to be sensitive to that. On the steel industry, and I'm saying this, you know, for this specifically for the listeners in your area, actually we're in much better shape on the steel file because... The steel producers in the states are agreeing with us by and large. They're not unlike the softwood lumber guys. They are not saying, go stick it to the Canadians. The softwood lumber guys are saying that. They're saying, go stick it to the Canadians. Those Canadians are bad. They're cheating. The steel guys are in the states are not saying that about Hamilton. So that's why I'm cautiously more optimistic about what will uh, come out of these the discussions uh, on the steel than I am uh, about softwood lumber. So to answer your question, we need to give him some, some successes. Uh, but in exchange, the deal is, okay, President Trump, we're going to give this to you, offer this to you, but we want this in exchange. And that's why I keep saying that, that I, just, uh, I just hope that uh, the Canadian side is, rational enough, if I can put it that way, to give up the dairy. There's only 12,000 farmers supported by supply management. There's 36 million Canadians. It's a very small number, and, but it's a huge uh, vote-getter in Wisconsin 
and in Pennsylvania, two huge dairy states. So, I mean, I think we've got enormous amount of leverage with President Trump if we offer to give up supply management. The problem is, is it's politically very important in eastern Ontario and Quebec, where the dairy, those 12,000 dairy farmers are located, by the way. They are overwhelmingly in eastern Ontario and Quebec. And if he is willing to spend some political capital on those 20-odd ridings in Canada by giving up supply management, I think we can get something out of the Americans. Where did I see that one stat the other day? I think there are more dairy farmers in Wisconsin than there are in all of Canada. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. They have just I, I, you, I, some of these stats I just memorized just because they're so astonishing. There are 1.7 million dairy cows in the state of Wisconsin. 1.7 million dairy milking cows. That's a lot of cows. <laughs> That's a lot of voters owning those cows. And he carried w- Wisconsin by two-tenths of 1%. 10,000 votes. So he needs Wisconsin, big t- as Trump would say, bigly. He bigly needs Wisconsin. And, and, and so there's one lever we can use. So, I mean, it's not that it's, you know, we say, how can we negotiate with the Americans? They're just going to run all over us. I don't agree with that. There's some areas where they've got leverage over us, but there's some areas where we've got leverage over them. It's going to be an interesting battle of wits here, because yeah. I say, I mean, you know, Wilbur Ross has a great reputation, and yeah. and people, I think, understand that this guy's a pretty smart and intelligent and a very intuitive guy. Yeah. But he's getting pressure from the White House. Uh, we, the Canadian side obviously is going to start to play defense, I would think. But at some point, I, you know, they're going to have to, as you say, maybe put dairy on the table. Telecommunications, I think, is a wild card here, uh, and that might be the uh, the card that the Canadians can play and say, okay, fine, you can come in, but you got to back off on the auto industry. And the steel industry exactly and and i don't know that that's how it's going to play out but that's certainly a i think a viable scenario i do too i i actually think that that the the, the telecom i mean you could sell it in canada my goodness you go to canadians and say, I, I, I could hardly sell. wait ian I, I, as a consumer he'll say i saved canadians from those rapacious cell phone fees that you are all getting shafted by and you know that's just a no-brainer right i mean that's going to be politically very saleable in Canada. And I think if they had telecom and they're using to, uh, you know, willing to use it as a leverage bargaining chip, along with dairy, uh, to get access, guaranteed access for auto and steel, which is vastly more important to Canada in terms of the number of jobs and GDP and so forth, then I think that that's why I'm somewhat optimistic. And I don't think that Trudeau's an ideologue. I think he's Right now, he's saying all the right words to support them, but he, I, I think he wants a deal. This is, he can go in the election of 2019 and say, I stood up to Trump. I negotiated a better deal for Canada than we had before. Now vote for me. And, and I think that's what his goal is. And if that means throwing dairy under the bus or, or telecom under the bus, I think he might. Ian Lee over to the uh, Sprout School of Business. Ian, always intuitive. Thanks so much for this. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks very much, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Chief's Town Hall, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, is with us here in studio. And, uh, yeah, we're going to take your calls uh, through the course of the hour today. Uh, 905-645-3221. That's 905-645-3221 to get a hold of uh, Chief Eric Gert. Uh, you can do it uh, a cell phone, by the way. It's toll free. Start 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. Your questions, your comments for the chief, or you can do it on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. We'll go to your tweets, your emails, and your phone calls. If you want to get into the queue right now, we'll go to the calls in a couple of minutes. But uh, we got a lot of things that I want to talk about with the chief, and I'm sure you may want to follow up, and you've got your own questions about uh, public safety, uh, law and order, traffic safety, any number of things like that. It's all on the table 
uh, to talk about uh, with uh, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Thanks very much, Bill. It's good to be here. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover here. Let me first of all talk about uh, the, the news story that we've been carrying on CHML News this morning. Of course, another shooting in downtown Hamilton. This one on Gibson Street. Uh, a man shot multiple times. Uh, I know this is an ongoing investigation, but I guess the overreaching question a lot of people in this community are asking right now, Chief, what is going on? But this seemingly, well, let's talk about this incident, and then I want to talk about the broader issue. What can you tell us about last night? Yeah, and a clarification. I know that it said multiple rounds. He was not hit with multiple rounds, and the injuries were minor. It was, in fact, targeted, uh, and we're continuing on that investigation. So uh, what I think you'll find is that we often state it's a targeted shooting, uh, it's kind of small consolation for the community. I get it uh, because if, uh, you know, from an aspect of being targeted for drugs, money, some other criminal activity, then the general community says, okay, uh, I get that part. Uh, but from a crossfire situation or general, um, somebody else getting struck by a stray round, we know that happens. So uh, we take it very seriously. It is concerning. It's just uh, the nature of the shootings to date have increased. Uh, but they have generally been targeted for those reasons. We've reported that to the, both the board and the public previously. Now, when you say targeted, let's let's try to define exactly what you mean here. Uh, does that mean that the shooter knew the the, the person that was hit? Uh, does that mean that this this was planned? What, what? And again, I know that this is an ongoing investigation, but we hear this phrase an awful lot. What does it mean? And that's both aspects, both planned and at a specific target, as opposed to random acts that are happening out in the public. And we know, obviously, from a, a terrorist threat worldwide. Those acts are random. That's extremely concerning. Uh, but these are usually targeted. In other words, the offenders usually know the people involved. Quite often, we don't get cooperation because there's other uh, things going on in the background that people don't want disclosed. And uh, then we don't get full disclosure. One of those shootings this year, uh, in addition, was accidental. As you know, uh, we investigated that and found it out and it was accidental. Uh, discharge of a firearm that doesn't make it any uh, less serious because you can get killed that way too uh but no when targeted that's exactly what we mean all right let's let's talk about imminent danger though and i, I don't want to start people running in the streets and i don't want to have any paranoia going on here but there does seem to be an increase in gun violence here in this city. This is not something that we thought of when you think of the city of Hamilton. Uh, you know, we hear about it in other municipalities. We know that, you know, gun control is, is not nearly as good in other parts of the world, especially to our neighbors to the south. But we thought, no, we sh we're okay here. In downtown Hamilton, uh, it's a concern. This is, this is not an isolated incident. There's a pattern developing here. And some people are local who are coming in and committing the crimes. Others are from other communities. And we have seen an uptick in uh, the gun-related violence in some other communities in uh, Ontario. Uh, so we're certainly aware of that. The other thing, if you recall from our use of force report, was the prevalence uh, of attacks with edged weapons on our members, the prevalence of people to pick up uh, either uh, usually a knife, but it could be an axe, it could be anything that's an edged weapon, swords in some cases. Uh, so there have been increases in that, certainly from our use of force report, and then add that on with the prevalence for firearms. But again, you just mentioned it's the availability of those firearms. It is, uh, and I've talked about it before in the show in terms of uh, you know flea markets down in the states where it's it's just hard to conceive where you'll just go to a public setting and there's automatic weapons and handguns and you're thinking holy smokes like this wouldn't happen in Canada which it doesn't uh, but you know if you're able to smuggle them across the border then now you've got a firearm in circulation that came from uh, south of the border it's not good I mean we've seen this and I'm I'm not 
looking at rose-colored glasses here. I mean, we but we've seen this happen in other communities. We saw in Toronto there was a the terrible shooting a couple of years ago at the Eaton Center, four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, where yeah. Gene Kreba. Yeah. And and again, I know well that was the one outside of of, of, uh, of course uh, the Eaton Center, but the one where the guy went right into the food court right. in, in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, and and there were innocent victims in that situation. We're told that was a targeted shooting too, but there was certainly collateral damage, and many other Correct. people uh, were were injured and, and of course frightened out of their wits as anybody would be in a situation like this. But it, it, invariably, Toronto police said, "Well, that's gang violence." Uh, is that what's going on here? Is this the prevalence of gang violence right now? Where we're, you know, we're going to get caught in the cost fire between this gang versus this gang, and, and they're taking it out with firearms. We're seeing less of a direct gang connection than we are in criminal acts. And really, where we're going with this, and this is any time you get into these acts of violence, it is that reporting of crime. It is uh, people calling us where they see suspicious activity. You know, if the uh, in the case of uh, the homicide up in Waterdown, we do know the vehicle was in the neighborhood for a number of days prior to. It's people paying attention to that, taking down license plate numbers, uh, but also cooperating with us. And we can see limited cooperation in a number of these investigations. Well, that places everybody at risk. And they can say, well, no, you know, I'm going to look after it myself. This is some of the, you know, uh, point of view of the criminals. I don't want that either, because if you're going to look after it yourself, Chances are you're not really responsible how you're discharging firearms when you're going to settle the score. So I don't need that. What I need is cooperation both from the public, from those involved, uh, for everybody's public safety. Now, that may not be important to them, but it's certainly important to me and it's certainly important to the citizens. But when you say, you know, these these people are known to each other, you're saying it's not really gang violence, it's criminal activity. What kind of criminals are these? Are these biker gangs? Are these uh, drug dealers? What's going on here? No, it's a whole mix. And as you know, the nature of crime in terms of organized crime has changed substantially. And uh, you'll see uh, whether it's uh, traditional organized crime, uh, Asian organized crime, Eastern European, you know, I can go on and on with a whole range of the organized crime. They often work in cells. Even the nature of gang issues, it's usually one or more persons acting in concert for criminal purpose. Well, that is a fairly strict criteria to establish. It may not be that sophisticated. It may just be, you know, somebody getting into the business of drug dealing or otherwise. And uh, through intimidation or otherwise, they're going to either threaten you with a weapon. Sometimes they don't even tend to shoot them, but things escalate a situation. Now they're firing. Um, This is the problem. It's not really sophisticated, uh, generally speaking. But there's a whole range of, uh, you know, criminal activities, why they're doing it. Usually it's around drugs, money, those type of things. Where are the guns coming from? Well, obviously, and we've traced it. I mean, I know Susan Claremont has reported on it. Uh, Northern states uh, is, our, uh, when we trace back those firearms through our programs, uh, that can be the source of origin on those firearms. And obviously, with the you know the borders, the way it works and how close it is, it would make sense probably Ohio um, and uh, those type of northern states that tie into us. Uh, but that doesn't mean people aren't going down to Florida either or just generally across the states. Uh, but as you said earlier, our gun laws are very restrictive. And in terms of permits and permit to carry and permit to carry a registered weapon or restricted weapon, I mean, um, we're not as prevalent as states, but they are prevalent in the states and they make their way up here. But but is there a market here? I mean, this this doesn't sound like it's random. It sounds like anybody around here that wants to get a gun can get a gun. So obviously there's there's a supply chain that seems to be happening here. Yeah, it's still more difficult, but I mean, how many weapons do you need uh, to supply the criminals? It's not like it's uh, thousands and thousands of weapons, uh, but you only need a couple of hundred, and that causes the mayhem. 
But but when you look at these incidents, and the one last night, as you say, was a targeted incident, uh, we saw one in the North End a couple of years ago where a young man was killed, uh, you know, not too far from uh, from Pier 8, uh, very troubling. Uh, not too many weeks after that, a daylight shoot in the middle of a Sunday afternoon uh, down around Victoria Avenue, a gunplay uh, right there in the middle of the street. Uh, some of these things are yet to be resolved. I mean, how do you handle a situation like that? How do you do an investigation, as you've just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, where, you know, as, as one officer told me during the investigation about the, the Victoria Avenue shooting, seems everybody went to the bathroom at the same time because nobody seemed to be looking at the street. I mean, it, that's that case, to my knowledge, is, is still unresolved, and that's it almost is. a couple of years ago. Yeah, and we still appeal to the public because we know people know things. Um, now, in terms of solving crime, when people disclose that, and that can be years later, that's fine. We're still looking for those disclosures. There's opportunities if you want to remain anonymous to put in tips through Crime Stoppers. Give us names. Uh, you can leave it. We have to do the investigation to corroborate. Uh, but there's lots of avenues in to keep your community safe. And, you know, if there's a, a, a tolerance around, well, no, we'll just have gunplay. Think back to some of the gang issues in Quebec where the general public sentiment was, well, no, you know, they're biker gang members, so they take each other, though, that's fine. Well, it's not fine because it's the collateral damage that you just mentioned. And if you recall in Quebec specifically, it was a young boy gunned down in the crossfire. Well, finally the public uh, took notice and said, that's outrageous. We can't have that, even though they're criminals uh, shooting criminals, uh, but there's a general public safety. So that's why we need the cooperation. And it can be some innocent who is killed in this crossfire. It's very important for people to report those crimes. Should we be concerned? I mean, th- th- these things are not random anymore. Uh, are we... Are we at the point now where we can expect to hear a story about something breaking out like this, uh, it's because it's not restricted to to one area. And I, I'm glad you referenced the Quebec situation. I remember doing an interview years ago, and I was still doing the talk live show on CH, uh, a Quebec reporter, crime reporter, that was gunned down in his parking lot in the middle of the afternoon. It was a biker gang, and he was reporting on this. Uh, and uh, they just walked up to him in the middle of the day and shot him he, seven times, I think it was. He survived and, and wrote a book about that, too. But you, you start wondering, my God, is that is that what's where we're heading? Is that what's happening here too? Yeah, I'm not getting that sense of that kind of groundswell. But uh, certainly, anytime there's money, drugs uh, are involved, there's probably going to be firearms because either criminals feel they're going to get ripped off, or they need to bring gun to the meeting, and then you've got guns present. So it's related to the other criminal activities going on. And so you know, when you talk about, uh, and we've heard it, you know, all drugs is a victimless crime. It's just the users who are exposed. Well, that's not the case. It's all the collateral damage. So as we move towards, you know, looking at things like safe injection sites, uh, the opioid strategy, this is all interrelated in terms of the impact. And then, of course, drugs is money, money is guns and crime. So uh, it's it's very much more complex than just a simple gun dispute or a dispute between a, a rival gang members. And, and I know some people are going to be dismissive of this and saying, yeah, well, that happens in the bad end of town. And it, that's not the case at all because it's going on everywhere. Uh, let me ask you about the other one that obviously has been in the news in the last little while. And you referenced the Waterdown shooting from a few weeks ago. Uh, a, a person, of course, with a known criminal background had been convicted and, and was living in, a, in an upscale neighborhood in Waterdown. And, of course, was gunned down in his driveway. Uh, and again, I guess that is an ongoing investigation. But now we've had incidents uh, at his uh, his brother's house uh, in an upscale neighborhood right downtown on St. Clair. Uh, that's a nice neighborhood. I mean, sure you drive by. I see it, you know every week. I'm down there. It's beautiful. The houses are gorgeous. Shots fired through the living room window. Uh, those people in that neighborhood have got to be saying, "What the hell's going on?" And and you know, what's should I be worried about this? What what's the message to them? 
Yeah, they should be worried because uh, we know uh, the past history, certainly with Hamilton and traditional organized crime, uh, it's diminished, uh, but that doesn't mean other players aren't coming out. And what are the actual mechanics behind? Again, we solve crimes through information. People have information. They know what's going on. If they feel they can tolerate that and then people are shooting each other in the streets, um, I, I don't ascribe that. So I'm in the job I'm in. Uh, but we need their assistance to solve these crimes. Some of the other things that are very handy for us is uh, video evidence anymore. Uh, it can be people setting up videos in their own homes to watch out on the street. It can be people, again, phoning us uh, to give us information. I think back to when I've told this story, it's not an organized crime thing, but it was a bank robbery up in Carlisle uh, fairly early in my career. And it was um, a young boy on William Street who saw a van that didn't belong. He was only about 12, and he wrote down the license plate. Well, when we did our canvas, this young boy offers, well, well you know, I saw this van, and turns out the bad guys had not uh, changed the plates in the vehicle, linked us to solving about four more other uh, robberies in banks. So it's that, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but that attention to who belongs in your neighborhood or not, and do you take the information down, do you give us a call and say, look, this is what I know. That's how we solve crimes. Yes, there's a forensics piece, but there's the big information piece. And then it becomes a question of, is that what society is going to tolerate? Do they think criminals should just shoot each other in the street? Well, from my, my perspective, there's the public safety, and we can't have that. So we need the cooperation of the public. How do you, begin and, and I guess even to that point, continue an investigation like this when, uh, as was reported, for instance, with the shooting on St. Clair, where uh, you know the, the victims, the, the family, the house, uh, they're not being cooperative in a situation like that. Uh, information is not forthcoming there. Where else do you look? Well, you look to the neighbors, you look to members of the public. Uh, again, people may underestimate how important their tiny bit of information is, but a, a case can pivot on it. So again, when our major case investigators do these crimes and investigations, they literally have hundreds, sometimes thousands of follow-ups that they have to do. Uh, well, yeah, that's a daunting task, but at the same time, in that mix of information, quite often you can start putting the puzzle together. And then you have... You know, in cases where we do recreations or something, that may prompt somebody else. Think about, for example, the sexual assaults where we have an arrest and then we put information out for additional victims. Quite often you get dozens after the fact. People thought, you know what, it's embarrassing. I don't think it's important. Our point is it can be extremely important. And particularly with multiple victims, that's always important. So the, these investigations are ongoing right now. Uh, we should, I guess, before we've got about 30 seconds left here, we have to do the break. Uh, talk about the place and, and the role that uh, that something like Crime Stoppers pay, plays in these investigations, uh, which is not, by the way, again, to, to reiterate, uh, a part of police services, but it is certainly a, uh, an ally in this in this whole situation. Definitely. As I said, they are anonymous tips, anonymous. It's not police-recorded equipment. Crime Stoppers is a standalone organization. And the, probably the most important point is it has been tested up to the Supreme Court in terms of disclosure of either the phone number or the evidence in terms of the, who the identity was. And the courts have said, no, uh, this is a valuable um, mechanism to get information in the hands of police. And, of course, we can't just operate on that. We can't get warrants on that basis. We have to corroborate, get independent sources, all those things. But those information tips, and quite often they're very specific with names and addresses, we encourage that. And, again, it's anonymous. Uh, we'll have to do a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes. Uh, you want to get on the phones and talk to Chief Gert, uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900, email bkelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. We'll uh, get you into the queue and go to your phone calls, your questions, your comments for the Chief of Police 
in a couple of seconds. Uh, just as we go to break, uh, one tweet from uh, Palace Pete, uh, who's watching us and, uh, and of course, listening to us and uh, on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. I guess this is relevant to our conversation about uh, the gun violence. He says, what do you expect, Bill? Our police aren't allowed to speak to anybody on the street anymore. Hashtag hands tied. Uh, thank you for the comment, Pete. Really do appreciate it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Welcome back. Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. It's the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. And uh, we'll go to your calls, your emails, and your tweets now, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. And uh, we'll uh, get you on for your questions, your comments for uh, the Chief of Police, Eric Gert. As uh, we go to your phone calls, and uh, where are we going to start here? Uh, Shirley, you're on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Shirley. Oh, good morning, Bill. Go ahead for the Chief. I'm glad that you've got the Chief on today. Uh, Good morning, Chief. Good morning. How are you? I will be fine, (laughs) eventually, with the help of the Hamilton Police Force. Um, I would like to ask you if you would uh, support the Ontario government and the federal government in an issue that has come up more and more in recent years, and it's regarding uh, rental properties, high-rise rental properties, housing, um, apartment buildings, you name it, rooming houses, you name it. What happens now under the Landlord and Tenant Act is if a landlord or his representatives want to enter your property, uh, your apartment um, or your rental house, they have to give you 24 hours advanced notice. Unfortunately, they give that advance notice or they don't and they have a master key and come in anyway. And... The other side of this is a very great concern for the police department and the tenants that these master keys are also handed out in tall high-rise buildings, particularly to contractors to come in, uh, particularly without permission of, of the renter. There is a lot of abuse going on, and what I'd like to have done is that anyone that has got permission to have a master key to your apartment with a 24 hours notice or a three months notice which recently I should have received three months ago and didn't and they came in anyway Uh, I'd like to have these people have what I believe is called a criminal check and they don't have to have one at this time I would like to see that all over the country particularly in Hamilton. It's rampant in Hamilton. Yeah. Many Go ahead. All right, Shirley, I'm gonna, I'll let, let the chief respond to this. Mm. Yeah, so there's a couple of issues. That uh, area of law is fairly complex for landlord and tenant disputes, and, and you're quite right. It's prescribed in legislation's about proper notice. I guess the counterpoint for master keys and things like that, when we're into evacuation situations, of course, you know, the legislation covers that too in emergent circumstances. And you can think of the fire that happened in London, for example. Uh, so the master keys, in our view, can be very important for getting access, particularly if people are uh, disabled inside, that we can get them, evacuate them, all that. So I guess there's multiple purposes in terms of master key use. Uh, but to your point, you know, if it's non-emergent, the proper notice should be followed. There is redress 
uh, through, uh, you know, landlord tenant commission, those type of organizations. Um, in terms of support of vulnerable sector screening checks uh, or criminal checks, uh, the legislation actually and the RCMP are kind of tightening up on that because what they're doing now is uh, limiting it to uh, direct contact uh, between people in supervisory positions with either the elderly or vulnerable persons or children and they want uh, some kind of nexus between what you do and the reason for the vulnerable sector screening check. Now you're talking about criminal checks. That's a different issue. And I mean, that can be based on employer needs, but they have to show, uh, this is both human rights legislation, but also freedom of information legislation. They have to show the reason why they would be requesting that information. So in terms of supporting that, I'm not quite sure what the, um, uh, either the bill or other legislation you're speaking to, but it's more complex than that as opposed to uh, just under Landlord Tenant Act, there's the FOI or Freedom of Information Legislation or MFIPA, which is a municipal act. Uh, but there's also, um, you know, constitutional guarantees, human rights guarantees. Uh, so there's lots of tensions going on around that in terms of why information should be disclosed, the nature of that information. And there has to be a, a legitimate bona fide purpose as to why that information would be disclosed. Uh, but, you know, you, you talk about a number of issues, master keys, legislation. Um, so I'm not quite sure which bill you might be referring to or what's happening in the legislative area. But but those police checks, and, and we hear more and more about these these days, that's employer-driven? In other words, is, is it right. the employer that demands that? That's correct. But also maybe the nature of the job that maybe for which you're applying? That's right. If you're dealing Sometimes with, it goes part in, hand in hand with that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's usually employer-based. Uh, that whole vulnerable sector screening check came out of the education uh, area, and that was because you may have people with sexual offense uh, histories dealing with children or vulnerable persons. So really that's what that's aimed at in terms of, they call them VS checks or vulnerable sector screening checks. The criminal information checks is a whole other uh, bailiwick. And you have tensions on both sides where people don't want to be stigmatized by, say, you know, uh, CDSA, which is Controlled Drug and Substance Act or marijuana possession, usually. Uh, conviction, and then, you know, that's forever being disclosed to everybody in a variety of environments. So that's why I'm saying there has to be a legitimate reason, a bona fide reason as to why the employer is asking it, or in your case, you're talking about, and I'm not sure who would even govern that. Would that be the superintendent of the building, um, allowing contractors in, getting criminal checks? Um, there's quite a bit more complexity around that issue. Shirley, interesting point. Thanks so much for the call. I do appreciate it. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Chief of Police Eric Gert here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ejaz, you're next on the program. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm coming back after a long time because <laughs> I had to go for a heart operation, open heart surgery. Glad you're back, Ejaz. Yeah, I got the new wedding and plugs now, so in a good health now. Yeah, you can get parts at your age. That's good. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Well, your question for the chief. Yeah, okay. First, I want to congratulate him uh, for becoming the chief of the police uh, in Hamilton because I didn't have the time to meet with him. The question is, I have one of the tenants, uh, you know, the uh, he became a witness on a crime. Uh, I uh, And uh, after that, the person was convicted and all those things happened. So now he is being followed by few of the people. He reported this thing to me a couple of days ago. That some of the bikers comes and stops uh, in front of his house and uh, 
He is not at home. He's worried about the family. Yesterday, he for, uh, forwarded me the uh, text message in which he got a death, death, uh, uh, death threat. So the, I told him, I said, you know, take this thing and go to the police station. And he had been going to the police station. And uh, he was not getting, he's pretty scared about uh, such situations. So I don't know what uh, as he has to do. No, I think you've offered up the proper advice, Ijaz, is he needs to come forward to us, provide the information and uh, whatever evidence he has in that, and that the investigation happens. And I know that you're familiar with the mechanisms to do that. So uh, that would be my recommendation, and particularly in light of if there's been uh, previous court cases where he was a witness. Um, and we certainly take those investigations seriously. Um, and if he's got evidence, as you've mentioned, either text messages or otherwise, um, you know, rather than forward to you, uh, we'd mm-hmm. rather them forward to us first, and particularly if there's uh, time sensitivity around the issue. So, and, uh, you know, I know uh, you've helped us out a number of times, Ejez. You know, yeah. I don't know your physical condition. You just described it as no, uh, hopefully improving. But no, again. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know how to kind of connect with us, make him feel at ease. Uh, yeah. Some of our community relations connections where yeah. he can feel a little more uh, confident about what might happen in terms of the interaction with the police. So anything you do to facilitate that and get him in and that he feels comfortable uh, disclosing to us, uh, we certainly appreciate that. Thank you very much, Chief. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Thanks so much for the call, Jess, and uh, get well soon. We appreciate it. Good to hear from you again. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Bill, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I woke up not looking at grassroots, so I'm a winner. That's a good day, then. That's a good day. Okay. My question for the Chief is, on those dual bike lanes, like one going east, one going west, right? Yeah. And they're on the one side of the road, okay? Yep. If, and it happened to me like yesterday, a vehicle is going, do a, is that an improper left-hand turn if they cut off a bike when you're in those lanes? Like, what kind of, how legal are those lanes, in other words? Yeah, what you have to look to is the signs, and uh, personally I find the signs take a little bit time to register. Uh, they indicate a left-hand turn uh, if you're making one that you have to yield to the bike lane, and of course, uh, the bike lanes have been constructed also on one-way streets, so our tendency yeah. is kind of look one way but not the other, uh, even though they're traveling opposite uh, to the traffic, but where those signs are posted, the bikes do have right-of-way. Usually, you're coming up to a controlled intersection, either a stop sign or, or a traffic signal anyway, um, but if you do have the green light, you can see by the sign indicated um, that you, you may have to yield to it. If it's not indicated, then obviously uh, the regular rules apply. But the signs, um, and I can't even describe it, You got it shows an arrow proceeding forward, it shows an arrow proceeding left, and then indicates yield to uh, the bike lane traffic, best I can describe it because, of course, it's visual. Um, so where those signs are indicated, yes, in fact, you do have to yield to, to uh, the bike traffic. Okie dokie, because that's going to be a long, slow, uh, what do you call it, educational type process. Because, you know, I drive a bike and I drive my uh, an automobile too, but I'm more conscious of bikes than most people are maybe because I ride one a fair amount of time. But they they have, they go up Cannon Street there. I'm going through. They, yep. I've got my little bike sign, and yep. they, they turn in front of you like there's no tomorrow. So my safety recommendation, like any case, is you can be right in law, 
but if you're underneath the wheels of a vehicle, it doesn't really much matter. Um, so if you're if you're riding the bicycle, do the cautious thing. I used to ride a motorcycle, and and probably the best advice I got from somebody was. Uh, Basically, you're, you're invisible, so act uh, accordingly. And it, that way, you keep yourself safe. You can be in the right, yeah. but again, if you're underneath the wheels, it doesn't much matter. Yeah, um, no, I, I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what you just said is just obviously common sense. It's just I was wondering under the rules of the roads, are yeah. bike lanes considered a travel lane? And the dude in the white uh, car that uh, whipped in front of me yeah. yesterday, he's, he's guilty of an improper left-hand turn, correct? Or fail to yield to the bike in that bike lane. That's correct. If the sign is properly posted, and uh, but even if not, if he has a stop sign and there's through traffic, and Canon one is probably the most um, uh, confusing because you've got a one-way flow, and then the bikes are coming in the opposite direction. But oh, it's it's, right. it's 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 wild out there now. But I do appreciate these stop signs that the not stop signs, the stop lights that the city right. put in. They're cool. Yep. <laughs> Okay, thank you very, very much, Chief. I'll let you get on with your life. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Bill. Appreciate the call. Uh, 645-3221, start 9900. Let me ask you about traffic of another vein. Uh, Saturday, as we were heading down to the uh, Sclerodermer Walk at, uh, at Battlefield Park in Stony Creek, we uh, went down the the Red Hill. Uh, I'm assuming you had a, a blitz on. Uh, we saw about four or five cruisers, I guess, in the upbound lanes. And about 10 cars pulled off to the side, by the way. And I know that the police were not just saying, "How you? how's it going today? Uh, is is this part of this ongoing program right now to try to curb some of the idiots that are driving up there and, and doing silly lane changes and obviously exceeding the speed limit? Yeah, and I normally don't refer to our citizens as idiots, so I'm not going to um, my word, not yours. <laughs> agree to that comment. But uh, uh, yes, we the do. ones who break the laws. There I you go. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we do uh, continue enforcement both the Red Hill and the Link. Uh, it's actually a joint project between a number of areas in the service, Division 2, Division 3, and support services. Uh, it's because of the ongoing issues there. And, uh, you know, we have some plans in the future as well around kind of the traffic enforcement piece because it continues to be one of the leading issues for the community, whether up in Waterdown or Benbrook, uh, certainly downtown. We hear it on this show. Um, so, yes, uh, it was a blitz, and uh, we do that. And the, the whole idea is deterrence, right? We're trying to get people to slow down, uh, obey the laws, not drive, uh, you know, switching lanes unnecessarily. And, um, <clears throat> you know, any kind of enforcement we can do uh, helps get that message out. Last night we stopped a guy doing 190 in a 90 zone. Uh, so cars towed, uh, you know, stunt driving, and uh, it just doesn't work out well when you want to test what your engine's capabilities are. Uh, but it's also the risk of the public. So uh, we've seen some changes in legislation that way that assist us to do our jobs. And, you know, it's pretty inconvenient. We don't have your car for a week, and you got to go get out of the tow compound, and, you know, you're suspended for that period of time. And uh, so obviously public is uh, changing in terms of its tolerance of that kind of behavior. Well, simply from a public safety aspect, I mean, I was glad to see that. And uh, the fact that there's so many pull, people pulled over on the side of the road there, it looked like each, uh, each cruiser seemed to have two people waiting uh, it looked like a drive-through out of Tim Hortons, you know, in the morning rush hour. Uh, but that just indicates the need for this. I mean, clearly, you know, because I know city councilors are saying, "Wow, gee, we put bigger signs up there." It's not making people slow down. Yeah, and we know as part of the whole traffic safety uh, process, yes, the signs help. Yes, engineering helps. But at the end of the day, enforcement is also, uh, you know, required, and it gets the message through. And for every person you do stop. Um, and I've seen people, you know, clapping and uh, very happy about the person they just saw driving in hazardous state getting pulled over by us. I also know that I also get feedback from, well, where are the cops when you need them? Um, and it's hard to be at all the locations, all the um, 
all the areas where this uh, behavior goes on. You know, and much like when we talked in Waterdown, let's keep in mind that it's the responsibility of the public to drive safely. Uh, we enforce the laws, but the fundamental requirement is through the people behind the wheel. And so they have to be, we've talked about distracted driving, we've talked about impaired driving, we've talked about all those things. Huge responsibility when you're behind a vehicle that weighs that much, can do that much damage. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago, a little while ago on the show anyway, about uh, the opioid crisis and, and the incidence of it. We already know statistically, of course, from our friends at uh, Public Health, that the Hamilton area has one of the highest incidence of, uh, I was going to say use, but probably abuse of, of opioids. Uh, there was a suggestion, I think it was at a police services board meeting recently, Chief, uh, that maybe officers be carrying naloxone as, as a, a, a precautionary measure. You didn't seem very hot about that idea. Uh, I've stated, we did a study probably about two years ago now, and I asked one of the superintendents of drugs and vice for quite some time to do a, a thorough research on uh, that issue. And so we looked at those recommendations. And part of the issue, and I, and I still maintain this stance, is, you know, we have, uh, I have Staff Sergeant Tory here as my executive officer, and, and I trust her if I'm at a call and all the rest of the stuff. But she's not a physician, one. Um, if I'm exposed to a chemical, uh, which I don't know, uh, and we know this from uh, at the opioid roundtable speaking to the emergency physicians who treat for those overdoses, either intentional or not, most of them are not, um, is that Narcan may or may not work. And if we're looking at things like fentanyl and carfentanil now, and I just was at the CFS uh, this week uh, listening to the uh, biologists and the chemists talk about uh, the designer drugs that are coming out. Uh, they don't even, they can't, they're having a hard time keeping up with all the substances that are out there. And so my view is, uh, I do trust Andrea, but uh, I don't want her dispensing medication to me that may or may not work. My view is we need to get our officers, if that's the case, and they're exposed to medical treatment as soon as possible. If I administer Narcan and then say, well, let's see what happens, I may lose critical time in the transport or having EMS attend or got to go to see a doctor who can actually determine what the substance is. To me, it's not a good strategy, particularly where we don't know what the substance is. Our thrust and our um, stress to our members is personal protective equipment. Uh, we went to half-mass respirator, respirators a few years ago, which was contentious. Uh, and our whole view there is, particularly with car fires, they're extremely toxic. Put a mask on. Uh, same thing with this. If you get into a situation, and we have paper masks, N95 masks, which are very, uh, you know, uh, they work quite well as well. Um, take that personal protective equipment. We moved to nitrile gloves. Why? Because uh, we know that they may not be penetrated. But even still, if you get a stab or whatever, it can happen. My view is get the medical treatment you'll need, whether it's a member of the public or whether it's our own members. We need the, uh, the qualifications from a doctor to treat whatever this pe- somebody's been exposed to. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Uh, we do this uh, every few weeks, of course. The Chief's Town Hall on the Bill Kelly Show. Thanks so much for coming in. Great to have you again. Thank you, Bill. And a wide range of topics today. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of stuff going on, too. We didn't even get much into public safety, but uh, there are a lot of events happening. Of course, Canada 150 here in the Hamilton area, and I know that police services are going to be out and about uh, keeping an eye on things as well. And just a quick note on that. Obviously, with the international incidents, uh, people have to be vigilant. Again, if things look uh, you know unusual to you, we know the nature of attacks. Um, we can't provide 100% security. It's just impossible because everything's locked down. But you certainly, for things that look out of place or events that just don't seem right, uh, contact us. We'll have officers at most of these events. You can reach out to them at the scene. And we're stressing the public safety part. We want people to enjoy the events, but we want them to be safe as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.